Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all your favorite pop stars, then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. I am your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. I want to begin here by extending a hearty thank you to everybody that heeded my call and rated and reviewed the podcast. Because so many people did that, the podcast reached a new chart peak in the Apple Podcast Store. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate everybody doing that. I actually wanted to quickly, before we get into stuff here, share a couple fun reviews that people left me just this past week. The first was from Mark L555. Outstanding, well-chosen guests, thoughtful, comprehensive analysis delightful witty banter oh my god i'm blushing really enjoying blah 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 particularly eager for deep dives into taylor swift of course bruno mars and jay-z when the time comes interesting i'm intrigued i am always unclear about how much people really want to hear episodes about rappers on the podcast i love talking about them so glad to hear that that's something that people would like to hear another good one i got was love listening to the pop i'm gonna skip some of the compliments because they're making me uh, embarrassed hopefully we get a barbara episode soon this is from o.well.man barbara episode I love that idea. That's really a good one. I think that that would be an episode that would cover ground that we haven't talked about so far and something that would be a big learning curve for me. So I really appreciate that suggestion. Thank you so much, O.Well.Man. And finally, another comical one that comes from someone I happen to know who you are. Hannah, can we hear more about the death of rock as a popular music form for the youth? Well, Hannah, it's not dead because... The biggest pop star of the youth at the moment, Olivia Rodrigo, makes rock music. So the question is moot, but I do love you. So thank you again. Please continue to rate and review the podcast. I really appreciate it. Also, socials, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. And the podcast is at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram, which as I've mentioned before, has a really fun graphic of every star we've talked about so far and where they rank in the Pantheon. So really useful to follow that, I think. Not just fun, but also useful. If you haven't noticed yet, last week we published a special bonus episode about the Janet Jackson documentary when we were cutting the Super Bowl episode Rich and I recorded for a bit discussing our feelings on the Janet Jackson documentary that recently came out. And I released that as a bonus episode that came out last week. It's only about 20 minutes long. I think it's really interesting. And obviously Rich is, as usual, filled with great insights and opinions. So go back and check that baby out. Just want to remind everybody that I will be recording a listener mailbag episode in the near future. So if you have questions, thoughts, comments, concerns about past episodes, about pop in general, about the pop pantheon. Maybe you're mad about where we ranked somebody and you have an argument for another tier. I'd love to hear it. About the Grammys, maybe. About albums that are coming out or have just been released. About whatever it is pop-related. Send it in and I will be picking the best ones and answering them live on a special mini-sode of the podcast. Email address for those questions is pop pantheonpod at gmail.com do not know why i gave myself a podcast with so many p's in it when i cannot stop doing plosives no matter how many screens i put in front of this microphone
I also wanted to announce a change to the Discord. So we have in the past been doing the Discord on the night the episode comes out and kind of keeping it as like a one hour thing that happens in isolation. I want to open the Discord up as an idea to people as something you can go to anytime. You can pop in there. I want it to be more of a message board for fans of the podcast to jump into, pose questions to each other, talk about pop, talk about pop stars, talk about episodes, whatever it is. And then the official Discord chat pegged to each episode is now going to be held the Monday night after the episode drops. This is going to give folks more time to listen. So hopefully more people will be around to join the discussion. It's always really fun. I really encourage people to join. So the official one that I will be at every single episode will now be held the Monday following the Thursday drop. So this coming episode's Discord will be on Monday 3-7 at 8 p.m. 5 p.m. Pacific. The link to that will, of course, be in the show notes, and I will also post it on all social media. Now, let's get into this week's episode, which is the first of a two-parter about Diana Ross. Obviously, one of the most important and prolific pop figures in history could not be contained to a single app. This episode will cover Diana's career with the Supremes through the 60s, and next Thursday will be part two, which will cover her entire solo career. I am so proud of these episodes. They are some of my all-time favorites. They cover multiple people periods of music that we have not yet addressed but are so important in the foundations of pop music and everything that's come after them. Chris, my guest, man, I mean, you'll see. He is a wealth of knowledge, so passionate. I just could not be more excited for you guys to hear these episodes. They're some of my favorites, as I've said. So without further ado, something I realize I say a lot, here is part one of our series on Diana Ross, The Supremes. It almost feels sacrilegious to talk about Diana Ross as a pop star. It's too small in scale, too confining, too pedestrian. When accounting for her more than six-decade career, filled with so many hits that she defined the word, so many eras that no mere mortal could honestly keep track, and such a wealth of indelible, towering pop cultural moments, sounds, looks, and images, Referring to Diana as a mere quote-unquote pop star does not begin to capture what her career represents. She's a piece of Americana, of the fabric of our cultural history. Her formidable body of work, enduring iconography, and impact on American culture feel as essential as Coca-Cola. At the very least, there is no pop stardom or pop music as we know it today without her. There's pop stars, there's pop superstars, there's pop icons, and then there's Diana Ross. Diana Ross's musical journey began with the crystallization of pop itself as we know it today, and her career remains both inextricable from the genre's evolution and essential in shaping it ever since. She was born in 1944 in Detroit, Michigan, also home to another legendary music titan to whom her fate would be forever linked, Motown Records founder Barry Gordy. In the late 50s, while she was still a teenager, Diana was introduced to Betty McGlown, Florence Ballard, and Mary Wilson, and together they formed a girl group, the Primettes. With the help of Diana's childhood friend, Smokey Robinson, the Primettes scored an audition for Gordy's then-still-nascent Motown records. Barry immediately spotted Diana's talent, ambition, and effervescent potential, and eventually, in 1961, agreed to sign the Primettes to a record deal on the condition that they change their name to The Supreme. 
Supremes. After their first record, Meet the Supremes, flopped in 1962 without producing a single hit, the group scaled back to a threesome with just Diana, Mary, and Florence remaining. Then, lightning struck. Twice. First, Gordy decided to firmly ensconce Diana, whose distinctive coup, glamour, and megawatt star quality were already on full display as permanent lead singer. Second, he placed the group in the studio with his new in-house production and songwriting wunderkind, Holland Dozier Holland. The two trios joined forces in what would become one of the great artist-producer collaborations in music history, beginning with the Supreme's second album, 1964's decade-defining blockbuster, Where Did Our Love Go? Where Did Our Love Go? and its perfectly constructed, impossibly catchy pop soul R&B confections produced three number one hits that are as titanic as any in pop history, Baby Love, Come See About Me, and the title track. It rocketed the Supremes to a then-unprecedented run of chart toppers and turned Diana into a bona fide superstar. After a series of cover albums, the Supremes released their third proper album, More Hits by the Supremes, in 1965. Again working with Holland Dozier Holland, the album saw the group taking the formula of their first hits, HDH's spacious, glistening, in-the-pocket grooves, paired with Diana's buttery, soft, sensuous, and ever-so-slightly anguished lead vocals, and took them widescreen. Like their early hits, the songs on more hits seemed laser-focused on one theme. Men, how good it is when you're with them, how badly they often treat women, and the pain of being scorned by them. But more hits added more grit and agency to the lyrics, and the record delivered on its name, producing two more consecutive number ones, Back in My Arms Again, and perhaps the group's signature song, Stop in the Name of Love. By the mid-60s, the Supremes were the biggest pop act on earth, rivaled only by the Beatles. For a trio of black women to occupy such a rarefied place in popular culture, universally beloved and worshipped by a limitless audience of fans when the Civil Rights Act was barely even a year old was a seismic and singular achievement owed in no small part to Diana's preternatural appeal and determination. Under the Svengali-ish tutelage of Gordy, who was now also Diana's boyfriend, the Supremes continued their unprecedented run of success through the middle of the decade with three albums in quick succession. 1966's I Hear a Symphony, whose title track peaked at number one, and The Supremes' A Go-Go, which featured the chart-topping You Can't Hurry Love. And then 1967's The Supremes Sing Holland Dozier Holland, which featured two number ones, Love Is Here and Now You're Gone and You Keep Me Hanging On. But as so many girl groups and boy bands who would follow them, the Supremes, at least with Diana at the helm, were not long for this world. Not when Diana had become such a once-in-a-generation superstar. 
Beginning with 1968's Reflections, Gordy pointedly rebranded the group from the Supremes to Diana Ross and the Supremes, setting the table for Diana's inevitable transition into a solo act. He even began replacing Ballard and Wilson's vocals on record with other singers, much to the dismay of these other founding members. Eventually, Florence Ballard was unceremoniously ousted from the group by Gordy for her erratic behavior and drinking, now widely believed to be the result of the way Gordy elevated Diana at the expense of the other two Supremes. Ballard was replaced by Cindy Birdsong for the remainder of the group's run with Diana, and Diana Ross and the Supremes released a further series of hit songs in the late 1960s that only further centered Diana's vocals and personality and also expanded the group's musical palette into more groovy, ornate R&B and socially conscious, personally reflective music on singles like Reflections, Love Child, The Temptation, duet I'm Gonna Make You Love Me and their final number one hit as a group Someday We'll Be Together. Diana left the group in 1970 to pursue what would become a storied solo career. But the Supremes continued with new lead singer Gene Terrell through the early 70s, scoring a few hits before fizzling out in the middle of the decade. But their legacy stands today as one of the most important foundational pop acts and one of the greatest runs of hits in pop history. Their monumental success opened the door for black musicians to only further dominate popular culture in the decades to come and cemented Diana Ross as one of the most important figures in American popular culture, a status she would only build on. Widely considered to be the most successful American group of all time, the Supremes were the most commercially successful of Motown's acts and most successful American vocal group, with, count them, 12 number one singles on the Hot 100, making them the act with the fifth most chart toppers in pop music history. They also have three number one albums on the Billboard 200 and have sold an estimated 50 million records worldwide. The Supremes were the first act to accumulate five consecutive number one singles on the Hot 100 and the first female group to top the Billboard 200 albums chart. The Supremes have two Grammy nominations and three songs in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Stop in the Name of Love and You Can't Hurry Love were named in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. In 2004, Rolling Stone placed the group at number 97 on their list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. And in 2017, Billboard ranked the Supremes as the number one girl group in history. Here with me to break down the career, discography, influence, and legacy of The Supremes is host of the wonderful podcast Hit Parade, chart historian, and pop critic Chris Malamphy. Uh -huh. All right, so I'm here with Chris Malamphy, chart analyst and pop critic and host of the iconic podcast Hit Parade and also the writer of Slate's column, Why Is This Song Number One? Chris, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you, Louie. I am uh, blushing. I don't think I've ever been called iconic before, but I'll, I'll take it if you're uh, giving it out. Chris, in the process of putting this podcast together, there were just like a handful of music podcasts that I really liked that I've listened to for a long time. I felt like the space doesn't have a ton of podcasts that I really, really love. And Hit Parade has always been just one of my go-tos. Like, Thank you. Like, you are legendary. You're a legendary <laughs> podcast host. <laughs> well, okay. Let's be real, though. Am, am I Diana Ross legendary? But then again, who is? I think you are a tier one music podcaster. Wow. Okay. That's that's a lot to live up to, but I'll, I'll do my best. As you know, I am the definitive judge of the tiers, so. Yes. No, the tiers are your You can take that one bag. to the bank. That's, that's yours. <laughs> that is yours. I'm so excited to be here today with you and talking about an artist that 
I think for a lot of my listeners and for maybe like a lot of pop fans that like didn't grow up during her heyday is obviously like not only one of the most iconic pop musicians of all time, but also just one of the most iconic American figures uh, like yep. in popular culture. Clearly. I sometimes think when an artist is, I don't know, held up on such a high pedestal and we're kind of so many decades past their peak eras of success, sometimes they become more of like an emblem than like something that like we actually remember like why they were so incredible and what their contributions exactly were. And to me, right. And to me, Diana, you know, I didn't grow up with her. I'm a huge pop fan. I, you know, I knew, I know the highlights, but I really enjoyed this opportunity to kind of like dig in a little bit further and to figure out a little bit more about like what the contours of the movement of Diana Ross for so many decades was really about. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited to dive into that with you a little bit. Awesome. Well, let me ask you a question off the bat. Like, were you born in 70s, 80s? I was born in 1987. Right. So, okay. That here's the reason I'm asking. Just we'll we'll start at the end and then go back to where you want Let's to start. Yeah. If you were born in '87, you were born after Diana Ross's last top ten hit in America. Like I think literally like one or two years after. Yeah, which is sad to say, but because she had a great run, and then it ended shockingly abruptly. Like when I was a teenager, I, I was born in '71, right. and right. she never quite recovered. And so. This only reinforces the point you made in your intro that she is this iconic, you know, bust of Mount Rushmore figure that a lot of people over the age of 30, even 40, really have not consumed as a regular part of the top 40 stew. You know what I mean? Mm, And and, and I, I am at least old enough to remember when certain of her hits were part of the then very current hit parade. But, mm. but even for me, like I, I, my life, my, you know, I was born in 71. My life roughly coincides with the heyday of her solo career, but right. I, I don't remember the early, early stuff all that well. I had to catch up with it later. And by the time I was starting to love her in the eighties, it ended fairly abruptly. So we'll talk about that, but it, it's an interesting point you're making about, there's a Diana Ross, the figure, and then there's Diana Ross, the actual pop star. That is actually exactly what I was talking about. And I feel like, yes, it ended abruptly, but I was honestly moved by just what a freaking workhorse she was. I mean, I couldn't get over the amount of times it sort of felt like her career was beginning to wane, like numerous times, and she was able to figure out how to bring herself back. Like, that is mm-hmm. uncommon. I mean, we cover so many pop stars on this podcast and they don't do that even great ones even amazing legendary pop stars you know when you really go back and look at their runs eight years ten years of you know massive success and you know i mean i it's become a running joke on this podcast my sort of like dragging of Katy perry but i always think of this as like a funny thing which is like she to me represents what most mega pop star trajectories are like they have a run of three, four huge albums. It lasts maybe for a decade. And no matter what they try and no matter how great they may have been, it's very hard to bring audiences along beyond that particular time. Only the very greatest are able to do that. And she 
embody that. I mean, I personally, even in my passing knowledge, didn't even realize she really had hits beyond the disco era. Like, I was shocked even to find out that she had hits in the 80s and that she even made that transition into what I think of as kind of like the birth of the modern pop star, which is like the early 80s, Michael, Madonna, Prince. Like, when you think about how we conceive of pop stardom, it's the MTV era on to me. It's like, right. it's like you know, the, they created what we think of as a pop star, all the things that it means, what it means to tour, what it means to like create visual representations of music, what album eras mean. I mean, one thing that was interesting to me is like, she both is the foundation for so many of those tropes of pop stardom that like artists like Madonna and Michael and Prince built on, but she also predates so many of the sort of like standard things we think about when we think about pop stars. And actually one of them that came to mind, and I think it'll be interesting in our conversation to sort of like frame this differently than we normally do on this podcast, which is like the idea of the album era, I feel like didn't really exist as we think about it today, like in the way that she released music. And I know this is part gets into your area of expertise, but she just pounded out albums really fast. And it wasn't this kind of like concept of like, let me have a full reinvention with each album. With right. each, each album comes complete with like a new sound, a new look, like a new motif. I feel like that's not how I consumed her music this time going through her discography. Right. And, and it's interesting because in both the 60s with the Supremes and in the 70s during her heyday, really, you don't get to an iconic album until you get to 1980 and the album she did with Sheik's Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. Prior exactly. to that, yep. you have bestsellers, including a number one album in the early 70s with uh, Lady Sings the Blues. But mm-hmm. there again, you're talking about somebody who, she's a multimedia star, and so that's fueling that. So your point is well mm-hmm. taken that Diana as album artist is kind of a short-lived thing for somebody who had such a long-lived career. She really defines kind of the singles artists. Uh, she really does, for better and worse. For better and worse. But yeah, I think it'll be fun in this conversation to sort of talk about the ways that she did sort of provide the foundation for modern pop stardom and like how we think of, I mean, she is potentially patient zero or one of them. Sometimes I think maybe it's, you know, it's maybe it's Tina, it's Cher, it's, you know, <laughs> there's a few of these pre-80s pop stars Donna Summer that maybe fit the mold slightly of the sort of like pre-1980s boom of pop stardom. And I think it'll be fun to maybe piece apart how she paved the way for a lot of the artists that we think of today as like the most iconic pop stars of all time. So we on this podcast have not had a lot of opportunity so far to discuss the decades both before and during Diana's peak years, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, sort of the beginning of the notion of what pop music is in the modern context. So I couldn't have you here without at least spending a good chunk of this early conversation just laying out some of the groundwork of pop in this era. Let's begin by rewinding a bit in that mold and talk a little bit about like I guess maybe the state of pop music, I don't even know if that's how it was referred to in the late 50s and early 60s. Like what did pop music mean? in the late 50s or the early 60s? Like, what kind of music was that? And what were the analogs to what we think of as pop stardom in the pre-Supremes era? Well, here's the thing. The term pop, which is such a debated and bastardized term often, Mm -hmm. means something different, really, in the 50s and 60s. Light pop, if you will. It could mean Montevani. It could mean, you know, Percy Faith and his orchestra. You know, it could mean Mitch Miller and the gang. Her eyes are bright as diamonds. They sparkle like the dew. You may talk 
You know, pop as a shorthand for popular did not mean rock and roll. It kind of morphed into rock era pop across the 60s. And then, you know, by the end of the 60s, pop has sort of fused with rock instrumentation, rock production, and the two have become synonymous. But in the late 50s, right around the time the Primettes, the predecessor to the Supremes, are forming, you have these different mini-movements. You have rock and roll, obviously. You also have the girl groups. You have doo-wop, you have rhythm and blues, which is a, as a term dates back to the beginning of the 50s. Jerry Wexler coined it. She give me money when I'm in need. Yeah, she's a kind of friend indeed. So all of these movements are sort of riding in parallel. By the beginning of the 60s, pop is embodied in a couple of different ways. It's funny, I just did a hit parade episode for the holidays about what I called chestnut roasters, uh, artists whose careers <laughs> have been dominated by one or two Christmas records. And there's right. no bigger example of this than the artist that kind of pivoted the whole episode around, which is Brenda Lee. Brenda Lee is a good example of what pop, such as it was, sounded like at the turn of the 60s in the sense that she had a little bit of country and a little bit of R&B. At least a couple of her singles actually charted R&B and a little bit rock and roll. She was rockabilly when she started. You tell me it was kind of a stew and she was a teen idol that's the funny thing most usually when you hear the phrase teen idol you think of a boy you think of right. Tab Hunter. You think of, obviously, Elvis Presley is beyond a teen idol. He's the king of rock and roll. But Paul Anka, for example. So the teen idols help define pop. Is it safe to say that Elvis is an important inflection point in sort of the notion of marrying pop rock, or I guess what we would call just rock music at that point, right. with the idea of like being a pop star? I mean, is that yes. is he kind of a big boom moment in that sense? He is, in the sense that, first of all, the teenager as a concept is all but invented right. in the 1950s. Teenagers as a, a marketing group, even a cohort that you thought of people between the ages of, say, 14 and 18, 19 as a cohort, right. that's a new concept in and of itself. Mm. And in terms of Elvis, Elvis is the king of rock and roll. He's certainly not the inventor of rock and roll. He's more the popularizer of this form that, you know, dates back to Ike Turner, the Moonlighters. But yes, right. turns it into pop stardom. And even before the 50s are over, you know, everybody says those early Elvis singles were kind of the closest thing he came to raw rock and roll. By right. 57, 58, when he goes to the army, he's already starting to record with backing vocalists that make his records like Teddy Bear sound more pop. I don't want to be a tiger, cause tigers to rough. I don't want to be a lion, cause lions ain't the kind you love enough. Elvis, between the formation of teenagers as a target market and the popularization of rock and roll in the personage 
of this sexy hip swiveling man, you have this whole cottage industry that's invented. And what starts to happen by the end of the 50s, this is an important ground layer as well, is that the recording industry tries to tame rock and roll. This is how you get the tab hunters and right. over in England, Cliff Richard, who are, you know, more palatable teen idols who have some of the energy of Elvis Presley, but are not perceived as dangerous the way Elvis Presley sometimes was. That's what pop is by the turn of the 60s. I'm very interested in this notion of like the invention of pop as like a teenager driven movement because that's something that exists to the present day. Sure. And it's almost like that marriage of something that feels just dangerous enough to upset your parents, but at exactly. the same time, like broadly accessible. And it makes so much sense because if you think of like the quote unquote pop stars of the pre rock and roll era, you think about Frank Sinatra, who was yes. like appealing to, you know, it's been said all that Frank ages. Sinatra, before they knew that teenagers were a thing, it's been said that Frank right. Sinatra was the first teen idol. Right. But he was also someone that could probably appeal to teens and also their parents, right? Yes. I mean, more so than someone like Elvis would. Like, Elvis yes. was upsetting to people's parents in Precisely. a way that Frank might not have been. Precisely. All right. So, who is Diana Ross as a kid? Like, where does she grow up? And is she always, like, aspiring to be a musician? Like, how does she discover her musical talent? She was briefly in Bessemer, Alabama. But for all intents and purposes, Diana Ross is a product of Detroit, Michigan, which was right. her place of birth. And by the late 50s, her family had moved to the city's Brewster Douglas housing projects. That's where she meets Florence Ballard and Mary Wilson, who are forming the Primettes. It's, this is an important detail. And this is what makes certain people who ride hard for the Supremes a little bitter, is that the Supremes was not, or the Primettes, the original group, was not Diana's group. It was really Flo Ballard's group more than anything mm. at the start. But of course, Diana had star quality and the ability to carry a tune and harmonize with Flo and Mary. <laughs> Together, they form the Primettes and start hanging around the Detroit music scene and specifically the figures who are emerging at Motown, whether that's Smokey Robinson or the members of the Future Temptations. They're making friends with people like, uh, I always get my Williams as confused, Paul Williams, not to be confused with <laughs> Otis Williams of the sure. Temptations. It's actually, reportedly, Paul Williams supposedly was the one who introduced Diana to the other members of the Supremes because mm. Flo and Mary were hanging around with Paul Williams and Eddie Kendrick, I believe, before they were hanging out with Diana Ross, but then it's Paul Williams who brings in Diana Ross. And then the rest, as they say, is history. And she's, is she like an ambitious person? Do we know anything about that? Yes. I, yeah. I think she always had that kind of yearning for fame. And mm. I see her as a little bit of a J-Lo figure. I once said that, you know, uh. Jennifer Lopez was going to be famous in whatever medium was going to make yes. her famous. And I think uh -huh. for her day, Diana Ross was a bit of that. Like all star quality, like full yeah. star quality. And like the medium was sort of like whatever she could do at all in a sense. That's always been my vibe on Diana Ross. This is my yeah. 
little yeah, take no, on it. I feel like that just given what I've just absorbed over the last couple of weeks, that makes so much sense to me because she is a right. just magnetic presence. I mean, like the sort of definition of star quality. So I can right. only imagine that that must have been available in some nascent form to everybody that was absorbing her in, even in this early period. Okay, so they formed this group, the Primates. Right. So this is an era of like a huge explosion of girl groups. Who are the major girl groups in the pre-Supreme Motown era. What kind of music do they sing? What do they sing about? How do they look? Like, what's the vibe of girl groups in that particular way? You've got the Shirelles who are hitting with Will You Love Me Tomorrow and Soldier Boy. You've got the Marvelettes with Please Mr. Postman. You've got the Shangri-Las with Leader of the Pack. Whether composed of white or black performers, girl groups have a certain sound. Also, I, a name I haven't mentioned yet in this early 60s period, even dating back to the late 50s, who's vital, is Phil Spector. Phil Spector, mm -hmm. his sound is starting to define not just his infamous or famous legendary wall of sound, but his use of harmony girl groups and the way he pushes certain people to the fore. Infamously, he records a Crystal single that he credits to the Crystals with Darlene Love singing lead because the Crystals were out of town and couldn't make the studio session that day. Right. So to some extent, these groups had personalities and to some extent, they were treated by producers like Spectre like they were interchangeable. Um, kind of like K-pop today a little bit. A little bit like K-pop, yeah. Right. And the thing about the Supremes, since it takes them several years to really catch on, and by the way, they're not the Supremes yet, they're going to get over based in part on their personality, you know? Mm. It's not enough that they can sing. Personality is going to be key to the Supremes. And I really think this is a distinction that makes mm. them not only the primary girl group of the 60s, but what's remarkable is when we get to it, all of the Supremes' big hits are from 64 to 69. Right. That's not the girl group era. The girl group oh, era is 61 to 63, 64. Once the Beatles hit, that's already starting to peter out. So the, right. the prime era for those Phil Spector era girl groups is earlier in the decade. The Supremes, in effect, mm. inaugurate a completely different wave of girl group stardom. And theirs is a different pop sound it's infused with r&b but it's a different kind of r&b it's motown most specifically mm. and in terms of this sort of pre-supremes girl group music for the most part these songs are light flirty teen girl does he love me does he not is he breaking I mean, my heart kind of vibe and sure Pic right? Picture, is that kind of like the overall? Yeah, vibe? I mean, several of these songs are written by the so-called brill-building writers of the early 60s, right? right? Your Carol, Carol Kings, Kings, your Ellie Greenwiches, mm -hmm. those songwriters, Jerry Goffin. Yeah, they are meant to sort of codify a certain, now that we know what the teenager is, we're right. codifying what a certain kind of teen love is. Picture the spoken vocals or the call and response of something like Leader of the Pack, complete right. with the motorcycle vroom vroom. <laughs> It's got drama, it's got heartbreak, it's got 
18 angst writ right. large. So that that's what girl groups mean in the first three, four years of the 60s. And are they appealing exclusively to a teen audience? Like we were just sort of talking about this divide and this notion of the teenager versus like maybe these more sort of broad-based stars of the 50s. Are they also kind of building on the notion of something that Elvis maybe created by this idea of like playing directly to a teenage audience in a way that was maybe unique to that specific time period? Because they seem much more sort of, to me now looking back, and I'm it's impossible for me to put myself in the shoes of a 50s teenager, right. but to me they seem so clean cut. They seem so like down the middle like everything's very, like they're always in matching outfits they have like the perfect appearance everything's very buttoned up but like was it seen as counterculture-y in that sense or yeah that's a good question it, they're not pushing the envelope the way elvis swinging his hips on ed sullivan in the mid 50s was right right and because they are you know to your point clean cut outfitted in the same kit there's a, a palatability however they're very much translating teenage emotions into song, right? The song quality is amazing. I mean, the reason those Brill Building songs endure is because they're right. very sturdily built. Take a song yeah. like Carole King and Jerry Goffin's Will You Love Me Tomorrow, made famous by the Shirelles. This is a song that's basically asking, if we have sex tonight, are you going to remember me in the morning? Without saying the word sex, without saying, are we going to do it? Without saying like a virgin, that's right. what this song is about. And that's mm. a very advanced notion, but it's aimed directly at a young audience in a code they can understand. Ah, you know? yeah. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about heartbreak writ large or mm. teen angst writ large, because it's not going to frighten parents necessarily, but it is right. definitely aimed at the kids. It's not aimed at the adults. So it, it's that's not exactly countercultural, but it is definitely youth oriented. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's the beginning of this fissure, I guess, that will grow over the 60s and into the 70s between right. those generations. Maybe the greatest cultural generational fissure in modern history. Right. I don't um, think anybody's, to your point about counterculture, I don't think anybody's using the word generation gap right. yet. But that's right. coming. That's coming in just a few years. Yeah, you know, I just want to start teasing that apart because I was very interested, and now we're, we'll move back to the Supremes here for a second, in just sort of the notion of this very polished Motown factory creation right. happening simultaneously to Woodstock, the Grateful Dead, you know, all of this stuff that felt very out there for that particular time. Right. It feels like... In a way, the Supremes, to me, looking back, feel like counter-programming to that, but it's interesting to think of them as maybe a less perverse extension of like whatever was going on in that movement. So I was just, I had to ask that because I said one of those things where, as I was getting at earlier in the conversation, it's like looking back, it can be sometimes hard to understand what these groups and movements meant because it gets so baked into the culture that like, to me, I look back and it seems like- It seems obvious in hindsight, but- It seems obvious and it seems oldies, you know, that we call this music oldies now. <laughs> one last point, let's just say it right out loud. Yeah. In, the, in the first half of the 60s, Motown, its very existence run by a black man and right. focused on black artists and black songwriters is in itself countercultural simply for existing. Right. right. That's such a good point. The Civil mm -hmm. Rights Act hasn't been passed yet. Right. Dr. King is marching on Washington in the summer of 63. That hasn't even right. happened yet when Motown is getting its first hits in 59, 60, 61. So yeah. just by existing, Motown yes. is countercultural. Let's say that. Right, right. It's like Barack Obama getting elected president. It's like no matter what his actual agenda is, his mere existence in the landscape like is radical. Yes. So who is Barry Gordy? What is Motown Records? And what is the Motown sound that gets 
established in the late 50s and the early 60s. And what is his mission? Is his mission to uplift black artists? Is that kind of the idea here? I mean, I think his mission is to own the means of production. He spent the mid-50s chasing publishing deals and songwriting. He's a songwriter also, Barry Gordy. He's not just a, yes. a mogul. Uh, he's written several And hits. a film director, eventually. <laughs> yeah. No, he kind of did it all. The guy's a multi-hyphenate. And it's only yeah. when he starts teaming up with people like Smokey Robinson who are telling him, you know, you could do this yourself. Like, mm. why chase after publishing deals? The white man's always going to screw us over. So sure. why don't we do it ourselves? And they do it in Hitsville, USA is just a storefront, basically, in right. Detroit. It's tiny. Hitsville, USA starts as a very modest operation, but it's one that Barry Gordy can control. And so beginning with records like Barrett Strong's Money, That's What I Want. The best things in life are free, but you can You've got an entire assembly line of black craftsmanship. Now, right. in terms of the sound, the trick with what Barry Gordy did was that he wasn't trying to do gut bucket blues and soul. The Motown sound is, to use that word you used 20 minutes ago, pop, in the sense right. that it is accessible to a white audience. It yeah. has R&B bones and phenomenal R&B playing. The Funk Brothers and the guys who performed at Motown were just top of their field performers, but everything was in the pocket. Barry Gordy's vision is that we can do this ourselves, we can record records, and we can have the whole audience. We don't have to just target black audience. That's his vision pretty early on. Right. And then in terms of like the quote unquote Motown sound, I mean, obviously another huge movement happening in this time and another huge center of girl groupism is Phil Spector and his groups like the Ronettes. How does the Motown sound either exist in conversation with Phil Spector's sound and how could we distinguish them from one another? Like, can Phil Spector's sound help us yeah, distinguish that's a fair that? question. The way I see it, if the, if Phil Spector is the god of the so-called wall of sound, Phil Spector recorded in mono and he would pile instruments upon instruments upon backing vocals upon backing vocals. But where the wall of sound was dense and thick and piled high, picture the way the Phil Spector Christmas album sounds, the way mm. Sleigh Ride by the Ronettes sounds. Jesse the Sleigh It's very thick, right? It's dense. It's it's called a wall of sound because he records it in mono and he wants it to be just piled high with glockenspiel and drums and horns mm. and backing vocals. Whereas the Motown sound kind of popped more. There was space in the Motown sound. Mm. It had energy. It had a groove. It was more R&B than a Phil Spector production fundamentally, mm -hmm. but it had space and air to it. And it had an in-the-pocket rhythm. Things in a Motown record percolated where Phil Spector was creating, as the phrase goes, teenage symphonies to God. He was creating this, this just, <laughs> you know, ethereal, heavenly sound that was like three miles thick. Right. The Barry Gordy sound was more about hear that bass line, hear that horn line, hear the way the vocal comes in. That's to me, is what the Motown sound is about. What's a good example of a perfect, pristine, pre-Supremes Motown record? I mean, My Guy by Mary Wells is mm -hmm. kind of a signature early Motown right. record. Nothing you can take and tear me away from my guy. Nothing you can do. 
So yeah. let's talk about how Barry Gordy and the Supremes come together. So mm-hmm. you said there's this group, the Primates. They are friendly with members of the Temptations. They're friendly with Smokey Robinson. Who brings Diana and the Supremes to Barry, and how do they begin to work together? I mean, they're still teenagers, and they manage to record one single as the Primates. But by the time they get brought over to Barry Gordy, I believe that it was Smokey Robinson who officially introduced the Primates to Gordy. You, I you, read that he was Diana's neighbor as a child. I read that too. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, my sense is that at the end of the 50s, early 60s, the Detroit music scene, the black Detroit music scene is a small mm-hmm. world. And everybody, right. to some extent, everybody knows everybody. That's the vibe mm-hmm. I get from what I've read. And Smokey is like, let's just say it, like a prime mover in almost everything that happens in Motown for like the first decade, really. But right. certainly those first few years when Gordy is getting it off the ground. And so mm-hmm. reportedly it's Smokey Robinson who brings the primates to Gordy. And famously, Gordy kind of doesn't know what to do with them at first. And their early records are stiffs. I mentioned earlier Mary Wells and My Guy earlier, which is written by Smokey Robinson. That is a specific iteration of the Motown sound, but it's kind of an early iteration of the Motown sound. You can hear what Motown was becoming, but it's a little breezy and light, even for Mm. Motown. And Mm -hmm. Robinson attempts to write a song more or less like that for the Supremes, which is- Are they the uh, Supremes at this point? uh, They, okay, the story about that is that um, (laughs) Gordy doesn't like the primates. He's like, that's that's not gonna fly. And he gives them a list of names to pick from and says, pick one of these. And out of that, it's Flo Ballard, who again is still kind of the prime mover of the group Mm. who picks the Supremes out of the options given. And they become the Supremes by 63. Good pick. Good yeah, pick. I yeah, like they, the made pick. The, they made the right call. Um, <laughs> but the record that Smokey Robinson writes for the Supremes is called Your Heart yeah. Belongs to Me. Heart Belongs to Me is the first record that the Supremes crack the Hot 100 with. It gets to number 95, a very modest peak, in 1962. And there's a reason why for the harmony group mode that the Supremes were, it just didn't quite work. It was good enough to crack the charts, but not mm. good enough to make them a big chart act. Is Diana singing lead on that song? Yes, it's lead vocals by Diana. And this is on their first album, which comes out in 1962, Meet the Supremes, which, as you said, they have this minor hit. They also have this song, Buttered Popcorn, I listened yes. to. That was like... Buttered Popcorn is, is kind of a hoot, yeah. And also sort of speaks a little bit to your like winking, nodding sexuality. Like right. I was like, okay, what is buttered popcorn exactly dears like that was that's very... about as close as a double entendre could get at that time. <laughs> yeah yeah my baby likes
but they don't have big hits on this record. And another thing that obviously was a huge thing with Barry Gordy is he was an absolute like drill master in terms of like making hit records. Like he wasn't happy with a number five record or a number no. two record, let alone records being at number 98 or number 99. Well, I'm sorry. you know, and here's the thing about Barry Gordy. When he called it a hit factory, he meant that quite yeah. literally. He's like, I will right. swap in whatever part will make the baseline hot, will make the vocal work, will make this more marketable. And he was kind of ruthless about that. Yes. Um, when people talk about the modern, what I call the Rihanna model of hit making, where, you right. know, famously Rihanna goes to like song camps and there are armies of people yeah. writing the top line, the melody line, blah, blah. And people say, oh, it's not like the old days where, you know, two people wrote a hit. Yeah, but right. sometimes in the 60s, Barry Gordy was ruthless <laughs> and his factory was quite literally an assembly line. And that was that was how he liked it. A million percent. And not even just in the 60s. I mean, when I we'll get to this later, but I was reading about her smash disco 1980s record that he basically took that out of the god Nile Rogers' hands and was like, we're yes. actually going to remix this entire thing because yes. I don't like what you've done here. So right. all the way through, even like way deeper into her career, his ear was obviously so keen for what actually would be successful. Like he, it, was, it really was. I mean, not that that needs to be said. He's obviously like the most legendary record man in history. So they have this first record. It's called Meet the Supremes. As we said, it features a songs with lead vocals from Mary Wilson and Florence Ballard, which are nixed pretty much entirely moving forward, which is really interesting. Obviously, right. Barry clearly understands and sees Diana's star quality from the beginning. Right, and 63 is the key moment when he decides and kind of announces she's the lead singer now. Like, he's he's not interested with that egalitarian thing of the three of them yeah. taking turns. <laughs> it, it, it makes Destiny's Child seem like the most democratic group of all time, given that he eventually, like, doesn't even allow the other ones to sing at all on the records as they move on, right? right at a certain right. point, he has different singers come in and they just, that was interesting. So, what is it about Diana's voice that we could hear, even in this early records that like really makes it distinct because we talk a lot on this podcast about how in order to be a pop star you don't necessarily have to have the greatest voice but you do have to have an instantaneously recognizable voice you talked I about rihanna totally incredible and modern example of this phenomenon rihanna is not like a powerhouse vocalist when she opens her mouth the minute you hear her you know that that is rihanna is that something that we could apply to diana in this era too Absolutely. I would compare her to Rihanna. I would also compare her to Janet Jackson, somebody who mm, yes. power vocal aficionados say Janet has a thin voice. It's been said that For Janet sure. has a thin voice. But what Janet does with that voice, there's a reason why people call Janet an icon, you know, because she knows how to work with what she's got. Diana Ross mm -hmm. is that kind of vocalist. Is she Aretha Franklin? Hell no. She doesn't have no. remotely that range, that pitch, honestly. Right. I'm not, I'm not accusing her of singing off key. I'm just saying she doesn't have that no. kind of perfect melodic eroticism that, that an Aretha does, right? No. She's not Dinah Washington either. Right. What Diana Ross has is personality for days. She has a coo mm. to her voice. You can hear it when we eventually get to their breakthrough single. I mean, picture that. I, I don't even have to say the words. Baby, baby. Right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, the, it's not just that she's saying baby. It's the way yeah. she says baby. Baby, baby. She like melts all over it in a certain way. Exactly. And so it mm -hmm. isn't just that Diana is gorgeous, frankly. Yes. You know, so right. she's got the look too. Her voice has mm -hmm. personality for days. And that is yes. why Gordy recognizes, even before they've scored a major hit, you know, that Diana has got to be the front person. That's just the way it is. 
Yeah, you know, I kept thinking about like, what is it about her voice? I feel like one of the things that's obvious from the beginning is she has a real joy that comes across when she sings. There's a smile to the way that, and you could see yes. it in her live well performances. Put. Like well she's she makes a song smile, which is something that Janet also does extraordinarily well yes. on a lot of her great hits. So that was one thing that came to mind. And there's a sort of not challenging, but very present sensuality and sexuality to her singing. Absolutely. That like, is not overt in a way that like, I don't know, love to love you baby is, but like is right. just enough to feel like enticed and allured by her sensuality. And the other thing that kind of came to mind to me when I was listening and thinking about it was, there's like an innocence. It's like the innocence paired with the sensuality is very alluring. Like there's almost a childlike quality to her. Yeah. There's a flutteriness to it that yes. makes it simultaneously very sexual and very innocent at the same time. And you right. can't bottle that. That is something no. that Diana just has. A hundred percent. That personality is kind of what sets her apart. Right. And the last thing I would throw in the mix is anguish there's like there's a sadness that she can bring to it but it's always in this very sort of like you're not getting punched in the gut by any of it it's all very sensuous and Mm -hmm. easy to absorb you know what i mean it's not like listening to janice joplin or something right 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 so the Supremes have this kind of flop first record to use a modern parlance and they then move on to their second record which becomes one of the biggest breakthrough smashes of this period it's called where did our love go it features three of not only their definitive hits, but I'd say some of the definitive hits of the Motown sound, all number ones, and probably like some of the definitive pop singles in history. We're talking about the title track. Baby Love. And Come See About Me. This is like a blockbuster album before the idea of like a blockbuster album exists, maybe? Well, an important record I want to throw into the mix, and it is on the Where Did Our Love Go album, but it's an important breakthrough because it's their first top 40 hit is a song called When the Love Light Starts Shining Through His Eyes. The reason this record is vital is because it's the first hit that they have that's written by Holland Dozier Holland. Right. Which it turns out was the other X factor that the Supremes mm. needed. They didn't just need Diana's vocals. Mm. There was something about the Holland Dozier Holland sound, the percolation and the syncopation of the Holland Dozier Holland sound paired with the Supremes and with Diana's voice that made a difference. Mm. So the breakthrough happens with when the love light starts shining in his eyes, which reaches number 23 in early 64, right. before the big breakthrough. And then, as you point out, then there's Where Did Our Love Go? It basically lays the groundwork for Where Did Our Love Go? What's an example of the Holland Dozier Holland sound pre-Supremes? A pre-Supremes Holland Dozier Holland hit is what they were doing for Martha and the Vandellas, most especially right. Heat Wave. Heat mm. Wave is... It's got some of that same Supremes energy, and it's a primo Motown record, but the way Martha Reeves sings is quite different from the way Diana Ross sings. Heat 
Heat Wave has personality the same way mm. a song like Where Did Our Love Go or Baby Love has personality. That's the X factor that Hollanders or Holland bring to the table. Right. And another thing you can sort of see through this wave of number one hits, Where Did Our Love Go, Baby Love Come See About Me, is Barry Gordy's establishment of a formula that works and then his desire to repeat that formula over and over again. You'll see this a lot later with the Jackson 5. When Barry Gordy discovers a formula that functions well, he like recreates it over and over again, right? Like these songs all kind of are of a piece with one another. Yeah, and there are interviews in Fred Bronson's Billboard book of number one hits where constantly you see folks associated with the Motown machine confessing, yeah, we took that previous hit, turned it sideways, changed these two keys, and we got this hit. So for example, Where Did Our Love Go pretty quickly becomes Baby Love, which is like, it's Where Did Our Love Go turn 45 degrees to the right. They're of a piece with each other. And yet they're distinct recordings. They have distinct sounds, different refrains. They're both great. And they keep the machine humming. It's the same trick, to your point, if you flash forward, how the Jackson 5 score hit with I Want You Back and ABC is just I Want You Back turned sideways. And Poker Face is just dance turned sideways. I mean, this is like a formula that gets used a million times. There's certain things that I found just interesting that they all share. There's this, there's the clap, 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 clapping sort of rhythmic thing that happens on all of them. Right. And there's, as you were getting at, a lot of Diana going, ooh. <laughs> right. She always does that at the beginning of like all of these hits. You're so right. Like they do work as a piece, but they also all really stand out to me like as individual yes. songs. It doesn't feel. That's the amazing trick, right? Baby that Love. Is, it, right. If you ask me to sing Baby Love, it, in my head, it sounds quite different from right. Where Did Our Love Go, even though I know they're using many of the same chords and all of the same tricks, the ooh, yeah. <laughs> to, to kick off. Yet they are distinct recordings they, with their own look and feel. So Yeah, absolutely. So these songs are kind of like the crystallizing moment for the Supremes. They're the crystallizing moment for what makes Diana such an intriguing, intoxicating lead singer and star. How do the Supremes present themselves? Like when they perform, is there something unique we can parse out about what they're doing and how they're perceived? Because I was actually talking to my parents the other day. My parents were born in 1957. They very much identify with being part of like rock, hippie, counterculture. Like that's their whole bag. But I know my mom loves Diana Ross. And I said to her, like, you know, when you were obsessed with Diana Ross, when you were six, seven years old at the beginning of their career, was Diana Ross cool to you? Like, did you, when you looked at her, like, was she somebody that was perceived as cool or edgy in any sort of way? Like, how did the Supremes present and how were they perceived in your interpretation? My impression is that they came off as elegant and Mm. that was part of their mystique. Famously, Barry Gordy had them take kind of finishing school effectively to kind of Mm -hmm. get the Detroit projects out of them and get Uh them to like walk like ladies and, you know, stand up very straight and tall. And it's very rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain kind of (laughs) my fair lady stuff. Opening last night at O'Keefe Center were the Supremes, Red Buttons, and um, little Stevie Wonder and a group called the Wellingtons in a concert that just simply packed the place, and they're here all week in Toronto. And I'd like to have the opinion of you girls of that opening last night. Were you impressed by uh, 
the number of people in the response? I was very impressed and I was thrilled at the standing ovation that we got at the end of the show because all during our performance I was very nervous. And you know, I, I never been. saw that before, a standing ovation for these girls. Yeah. Yeah. I was Did you notice that? Tremendous. Very, very nice. You know, so like they were groomed, not unlike a K-pop act in the modern day, to present in a certain way. And they were class personified. And, And I think that really mattered. They felt modern and yet they felt classic enough that they could be three young Ella Fitzgeralds. Do you know what I mean? In terms of the way they presented. Not edgy though, right? Like not seen as edgy. That's not my impression, no. They were not edgy the way Tina Turner at this time would have been edgy. This is the Motown, the Barry Gordy aesthetic. He wants everybody. He wants the whole audience. He doesn't want to scare anybody off. Barry Gordy is not looking to freak anybody out. He's looking to take the best of Detroit R&B, but make it palatable for the whole country. I'm just fascinated as I was looking back at this. It's like we think of the 60s, as as we've talked about numerous times now, as this countercultural decade of this decade of music that was all about tearing the fabric of you know, popular culture and creating this generational rift. But that's really such a flattening of history because simultaneously to that, you have this Motown movement, this extremely popular slew of artists led in some ways by Diana Ross and the Supremes, who are kind of the opposite of that. As you said, they also fly in the face of the sort of raucous tropes that we all hold up from this era. They don't write their own music. Things that we think of as like, that's what the 60s were about. And so many people hold up pop music to this day against the values that were created in the rock movement of this era. But at the same time, it's like you have this completely other thing that's happening, this proudly factory style producing of pop music that's represented by the Supremes. I was really interested in that because I just think these narratives get so flattened over time. And this was just like going back through this, it was like, not quite exactly. Like they were the most popular group. I mean, they were rivaling the Beatles in terms of popularity. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Beatles. You read my mind because I was going to talk about the Beatles. I mean, think about what was considered countercultural in 63, 64. The Beatles showing up in America in suits, but with shaggy hair in 64, that was pretty rebellious, right? That was, that was counterculture in 64. Mm -hmm. Motown merely, again, I'm going to say something I said before, by existing, by being a black form that was made palatable for a white audience, merely by existing, that was countercultural. And so Mm -hmm. within that frame, Barry Gordy's all about, okay, but I'm going to put you ladies through finishing school and teach you to, you know, walk tall, walk proud and be ladies because we're not going to freak anybody out and you're not going to be singing socially conscious stuff, at least not yet. The Supremes were not trying to lead the counterculture to get back to Perhaps your they question. had less rope. You know, I, I, you can't erase the role that race is playing in the guts of every single moment of this, which is that Absolutely. Like, perhaps, you know, the Beatles as like four white, straight white guys walking around potentially felt like they had more rope to do more challenging things. Whereas like they had to be the vision of perfection, something that was just like no missteps, nothing that was pushing anything too far in any direction because they probably wouldn't have been embraced if they took one little step too far outside of what could have been palatable to white audiences at that point for a black That's artist. That's right. And I, I'm also glad you brought up the Beatles because, I mean, you kind of can divide the 60s into pre-Beatles, post-Beatles, just in right. the sense of like what the expectations were on the charts and what an act would do. And what also blows my mind about the Supremes, which we'll get into, is this unbelievable run of hits they have. Right. 
runs parallel to the Beatles. The Beatles yes. scored their first number one hit in 1964. The Supremes scored their first number one in 1964. The Beatles have an incredible 1965 where they score six straight number one hits going from like late 64 into early 66. The Supremes have an amazing 1965 in which they score five straight number one hits. So like mm. weirdly, these two acts merely by existing, right? The British invasion, just because of British group, that was a novelty in 1964, becomes the leader of our hit parade. And then right. this black female group group that were in their way more on trend than that first wave that Shirelle's Marvelettes wave were. Right. They are kind of redefining what pop sounds like for the next five years. Kind of two outside forces invading mainstream white American culture. It's like you've got this British group who are doing music and presentation that's potentially challenging to the white establishment of America at that time. And then you have this black group of women. They're the kind of these two outside forces that are dominating pop music in a time that we think of as very dominated by like whatever we think of as like mainstream white culture at that time, totally. which is really interesting, even if they're doing it totally differently. So you talked about the slew of hits. So basically the Supremes after Where Did Our Love Go comes out. This is an oversimplification because actually their next two records I don't think perform particularly well. There's a Rogers and Hart album of Well, covers. what they do is they do a set of albums all covers, including a, right. a Liverpool album and a Rogers and Hart album. Yeah. You heard me saying a prayer for someone I really could care for. Those almost don't count in my mind right. because they are That's not, what I was wondering they're not promoted as like flotillas of actual singles. The place right. to pay attention is on the Hot 100 where literally each hit without right. a break is going right. to number one. I mean, that's the shocker. Their um, second actual real record is called More Hits by the Supremes and features right. a couple songs you might have heard of. Stop in the Name of Love. Stop in the name of love before you break my heart. And Back in My Arms Again. What is happening on those songs that we can point to maybe as a potential evolution in the Supreme sound or building on what they did before? Or do you see them as just extensions of what the Supremes and Holland, Dozier Holland were doing on the first record? I see them as an evolution and it's happening sort of single by single. I mean, you look at a record like Back in My Arms again, and yeah. it's not exactly following the baby love, where did our love go model. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of getting a little more widescreen in terms of the sonic palette and the way the, the instrumentation goes. It's kind of taking the Where Did Our Love Go template, but like increasing the melodicism to it. You know, the harmonies are exquisite. So the Supremes and Holland Dozier Holland at this phase are kind of evolving the way the Beatles are evolving. The Beatles are still mop toppy, but each right. single is just getting a little wider screen the way Ticket to Ride is getting a little wider mm. screen than the 64 hits did. Yeah. It's both of a piece with the 64 stuff and an extension or a, a building out of. There's just certain themes though that they are constantly hitting on that I couldn't escape. And I guess this is like hard to sort of pit against our modern conceptions of like feminism and 
how women represent themselves in their music, but they are constantly victims in their songs in this way that I find really interesting, like constantly objects of how men are treating them. Like that is just like the mm-hmm. ongoing theme through so many of these songs. Like where did our love go? Uh, it's all about asking like, why have you done this to me? Stop in the name of love. You know, there's a lot of like cheating men that are treating them badly. It's like kind of like the ongoing theme of so many of these Supreme hits. Maybe you can tell that many of them were written by men and thus like seem to like center like the women as sort of like objects that things happen to <laughs> in a sense. Right. Maybe Stop in the Name of Love is one of the first moments where we hear them assert themselves into that dynamic a little bit more clearly, like where they're actually like having some form of agency. I don't know. Yeah, it's a stretch, but I hear what you're saying because at the same yeah. time, when you have a personality like Diana Ross in the front of the group, you want to give them not just a whole bunch of weepers, but you want to give them a little bit of self-assertion you know by the time you get to something like you keep me hanging on right yes there's it's still a heartbreak song but it's kind of like pardon my french don't fuck with me you know what i mean yes love me or leave me you know but don't keep me hanging here it's interesting because at this time holland dozier holland were also writing for the four tops and when they were writing for a male troupe it's i can't help myself sugar pie honey bunch So you're Mm. right that there's definitely, they're thinking with more agency when they're writing for the men. Whereas for the women, it's a little bit more, how could you do this to me? But even within that framework, once you start getting to those mid-period singles, they're just getting a little more assertive and a little spunkier. Honestly. I thought about that with You Keep Me Hanging On as a really good example. Like there's so much more defiance in that. Almost mm-hmm. strikes me maybe as like a prototypical female in power red song. Like you're kind of like finally giving the finger to somebody. So much of modern pop stardom, especially these days, is about this version of feminism. Females dominate a lot of pop music and a lot of their music centers around reclaiming narratives and saying fuck you to men that have done them wrong. And like these early Supreme songs don't have that vibe at all. But You Keep Me Hanging On, I thought was a really interesting song that maybe we should land on just for one second. I almost felt like that was a real evolution in terms of the way that the song sounded. It almost, to me, sort of presaged a little bit of like some of the disco elements that Diana brought into her lyrics. I agree. Like the way that that guitar line is strummed. I'll use this word, it has drama. The mm. way a great disco record has drama. Picture the way, say, Thelma Houston sings Don't Leave Me This Way. So what's starting to evolve in these Holland Dozier Holland records is 
they're amping up the drama. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's it's not right. just 14 takes on where did our love go? It's right. like stop in the name of love. It's you keep me hanging on. It's going to evolve further into you can't hurry love. Mm-hmm. So the frame is widening ever so slightly with each record. But I agree with you about the disco vibe. Because that's definitely there. So as we move through the 60s, the Supremes are having, as we said, like one of the most unprecedented and hallmark run of hits in pop music history. As we move through this era, the other members of the group are sidelined even to a greater extent as they move on. As we talked about earlier, Barry Gordy essentially has them stop singing on the records at a certain point, replaces them on record with this duo, I think, called the Andettes. I think and that's right. So Diana is clearly emerging or is being set up by Barry as a superstar. Are they trying to set her up as a solo artist as this movement moves on? Yes, unquestionably, because by 67, The Happening is their last number one hit as just the Supremes. They come back on Reflections as Diana Ross and the Supremes. To flash forward 20 years later, it's like what happens when Miami Sound Machine becomes Gloria Estefan and Miami Sound Machine. You right. know that they're setting up somebody for superstardom. And so... This is what's happening with Diana, is that they are doing a very careful rebranding of the group to make the two other singers, who, Mm -hmm. let's not forget, co-founded the band, backing vocalists to Diana, which had to hurt. And the real tragic story, which we don't have to get too much into, is Florence Ballard, right. uh, who you who know, basically died from this. I mean, as far as I could figure out, like I she mean, was... it's an oversimplification, and yet it has the ring of truth. I think you're exactly right. right that she died of the broken heart created by the way she was sidelined. She starts mm-hmm. missing gigs in '66, '67, and finally she's let go by Barry Gordy and replaced by a new vocalist Cindy Birdsong right. for the last that last stretch of Diana Ross and the Supreme so essentially Florence Ballard who for all intents and purposes launched the group is given the heave ho it also should be inserted here I don't think we've mentioned this that Diana is at this point romantically involved with Barry Gordy which yes. I can only imagine is adding to the intergroup dynamic tension here yeah paging HR like this I is... mean literally like I was like okay that's gotta be horrible I mean that Florence Ballard story is genuinely hard breaking but do you have a sense that by the late 60s is diana one of the biggest celebrities in the world or is it still seen as the supremes or has she emerged as like the way that towards the end of destiny's child beyonce was so obviously like this superstar is that like an analog i think beyonce and destiny's child is an easy analog yes i think that's clear you start seeing them doing these tv specials like they get teamed up with the temptations on several tv specials they even get a number one album out of one of them My name is Diana Ross, and this is Mary Wilson. And uh, that's Cindy Birdsong. business is singing and tonight we're gonna take care of business you know in all of these tv performances diana is clearly the focal point just the way the vocals are presented on a record like reflections reflections yes. it's one of my favorite supremes tracks by the Me way too. I, I love 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 reflections number two hit should have been a number one yes. reflections is a great record and to me it almost reads as like the blueprint 
It's the first mm-hmm. Diana Ross and the Supreme single, first of all, officially. Right. It reads as like the blueprint of Diana's solo career, if we're flashing ahead. Hollander's your Holland track. Although that's about to change too, because by in Barry Gordy's vision, they got a little too uppity and demanding too much and wanting more royalties because they were the architects of so many of the big Motown hits of the mid 60s. But it's still a Hollander's your Holland track, and yet it feels like it was tailor-made for Diana more than the group. Not that the other hits didn't also have showcase moments for Diana, but Reflections, from its structure on down, just Mm. feels like a Diana Ross showcase. The contemplative lyric, the way she's given set-aside moments, that just feels like a different vibe than a record like You Can't Hurry Love or a record Mm. like You Keep Me Hanging On, which don't, to me, read as solo Diana records the way Reflections does. Yes, it's also a little bit more mid-tempo, which a lot of Diana's early 70s solos records are, whereas like a lot of the early Supremes records you would classify as more up-tempo. I was also very intrigued by Love Child, which is, I think, maybe their final hit as a group with Diana in the band and unlike some of the frothier topics that they usually cover as we've talked about heartbreak being wronged men cheating on them so stop in the name of love whatever is about a kid born out of wedlock and like the challenges of being a bastard child i don't know yeah felt like a huge departure for them. Yeah, no, it's a huge departure on a number of levels. First of all, it's their next to last number one hit with Diana and the group. Their last is famously the last number one single of the 1960s, Someday We'll Be Together. Which, by the way, is uh, later sampled by Janet Jackson on If. When you hear it, it now sounds like the blueprint for a lot of songs from the hip-hop era or the 90s R&B era that sample that that little filigree. To go back to Love Child, which you asked about, it's the first number one hit by the Supremes that is not written by Holland, Dozier Holland. This is the moment Mm. when they have broken away from Motown in a fit of acrimony with Barry Gordy, who doesn't want to pay them any more than he's paying them. So it's by a team of Pam Sawyer, Ardeen Taylor, and Frank Wilson. 
all luminaries within the Motown stable, but don't have the brand name of Holland mm. Dozier Holland. So it's written by different folks. And it's the first time, yes, to your point, where Barry Gordy allows the Supremes, this is now late 1968, he yes. allows them to be touching on a social issue, a birth out of wedlock. That mm. is not something that would have been on a Supreme single as recently as 66. But on 68, they're scoring a number one hit. And is that a sign of how culture is changing? I mean, now we're post-civil yeah. rights movement. Rock and Absolutely. roll is obviously the prevailing pop cultural force. Maybe teen ears are more primed to hear challenging records in that I sense. mean, to, to place this in context, Love Child is the number one hit that knocks out Hey Jude by the Beatles. Oh, so like, picture that moment. Hey Jude, don't let me down. You have found her. Now go and get her. Remember. By the way, it's then knocked out by I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Marvin oh. Gaye. What a run, my God. Yeah, it, it ain't a bad period. I mean, you no. know, sometimes you get a little annoyed when the boomers get smug. Well, you kids yeah. don't understand. <laughs> you look at a year like late 68, you're like, okay, you got to give it to them. That's fucking great. Yeah. Like, that, those agree. are some great records. I agree, um, but I hope my parents don't listen to this because I'm constantly, like, trying to get them to stop saying that to me. I know. No, believe me, I have the I have the same issue as a Gen Xer, but what can you do? But that's the moment this is, like the moment when we're more than a year past flower power, right. Motown records are getting more ethereal. Think about the way I heard it through the grapevine sounds. The mm. Temptations are scoring with hits like I Can't Get Next to You. Stevie Wonder is moving toward things like A Place in the Sun and uh, Shooby Dooby Doo Da Day and right. Sharia Moore. My The sonic palette and the groove and the vibe is just expanding. It's a new day for the Supremes. Do you have a sense of how the breakup is received in popular culture? Because we have a very modern conception of like groups breaking up and like the drama that that causes in fan bases throughout pop culture. I mean, you think about Zayn leaving One Direction, you think about Jerry leaving the Spice Girls, you know, you think about all of these moments and it's usually like kind of like a shockwave gets sent through popular culture. Is that how that happened in the 60s or were we so pre these tropes that it wasn't You're like asking that? an interesting question. It isn't that we're pre these tropes because okay, Someday We'll Be Together goes to number one in December 1969. It's the last number one hit of the Supremes. They Right. one more performance together with Diana in January 1970. I'd like to thank the Frontier Hotel and of course all of our fans and everyone that's been with us over the last 10 years. Now, what's happening in 1970? What other group is about to break up in 1970, famously, that everybody's been talking about since Thanksgiving? The Beatles, right? Right. The Beatles... That was the ultimate example of the traumatic breakup. So right, breakups right. <laughs> in 1970 right. could be traumatic, right? And right. we're still debating 50 years later. Well, Paul was the one who announced it, but really John wanted the group to be broken up six months right. earlier. And George, let's not forget, actually left the group for a few days during Let It Be in early 69, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Whereas the Supremes, I would actually compare it, and I think you made this comparison earlier, to Destiny's Child because right. the breadcrumbs were dropped for so long about Beyonce that right. when Beyonce finally records a solo album, 
it ain't even a shock. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's even right. a Destiny's Child album after the first Beyonce album. Yes. That doesn't happen with the Supremes. Once Diana's gone, she's gone. But my vibe on what I've read is nobody ever talks about the trauma of the mm. breakup in January 1970 of the Supremes. The minute they put Diana's name in front in 67, everybody knew where this story was going. Right. And by the way, the Supremes continue to exist. In fact, the right. Supremes, in that first six months, they had a top 10 hit just after Diana leaves. Diana's first hit, a now famous Diana Ross solo track, mm -hmm. Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand, co-written by Ashford and Simpson, only reaches number 20. So mm -hmm. at first, Diana has a bit of a rocky start to the solo career that takes a few months to resolve itself. Right, but in terms of sort of like the inevitable end of the group and the way that that had been set up over the preceding years, it makes sense because with Barry Gordy at the helm of something like this, such an expert craftsman of sort of careers and movements, totally. you would expect that he plotted this starting from the very beginning and expertly like Machiavellian laid this out so that she was going exactly. to have this breakout moment. But wow, Chris, I mean, just reflecting on this whole thing, the Supremes sit at the intersection of so many important foundational moments in our conceptions of popular culture. And what a run. I mean, these songs endure like pieces of Americana. They're like apple pie or like the um, national anthem. I mean, it's really moving to me looking back at all this music and how profoundly it has embedded itself in the very fabric of popular culture and it seems clear to me that diana ross would be in the canon of americana whether or not she had gone on to this incredible second and third waves of her career which we now know that she does but even with just this she is so clearly one of the most important musical figures to have existed in the history of recorded music it's truly astounding. I want to send us out here on a song we didn't get to touch on too much, but it's one of my favorite Supreme songs and I think really illustrates the beauty of Diana's artistry and her voice, which is 1965's I Hear a Symphony. That's part one of our series on Diana Ross. Next week, we will be back with an episode that covers Diana's entire solo career and in which Chris and I will rank Diana Ross in the official pop pantheon. I want to thank Chris Malamfi for being the most incredible guest, and I can't wait to share the rest of this piece with you. Please follow Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Instagram and Twitter. Send your questions to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Get in the Discord chat. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And guys, until I see you next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.